Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, to find out more about what's going on, and uh, and all sorts of other good things. I'll, I won't belabor the point. Um, and also by the National Association of Scholars, one of America's most vibrant intellectual communities. I'm excited to have in the studio, live and in person, Phil Klein, who are you... What is your title of the examiner now? Executive editor. You're executive editor of the uh, Washington Examiner and the author of Fear Your Future, How the Deck is Stacked Against Millennials and Why Socialism Would Make It Worse. Um, it's um, it's not a feel-good book. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in time for the holiday season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So why don't you um, – uh, I should tell – Listeners, that the graph on the front cover is total public federal debt, 1964 to 2049. And basically, it looks like uh, the back end of a tsunami of red ocean water. Um, so uh, uh, it's a subtle, ambiguous <laughs> message here. <laughs> um, but why don't you explain it for people? Yeah, basically... Um what this book is about, I think that millennials may be the most mocked generation in American history. Mm -hmm. um, and there's sort of a lot of stereotypes. There's special snowflakes. They You're chomping down on avocado toast and guzzling mimosas and living in their parents' basements and so forth. Um, but I think that they actually are getting a raw deal and have a lot of legitimate reasons to be resentful, uh, particularly toward baby boomers. And uh, basically what I write about in my book are that they're facing twin challenges. One has to do with the unprecedented level of federal debt. The other has to do with uh, the financial headwinds that they're facing um, in terms – particularly in terms of cost of living mm -hmm. um, on many key goods such as health care, college education, child care and so forth. Um, and so the the problem and the, the fear I have is that basically um, the, you have people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and AOC who are coming along and sort of – tempting them by saying, well, all of these problems that you have in terms of your personal finances and costs, we could take them off off, off of your, your plate. You know, student loan debt, we're going to wipe that away. We're going to give you free child care and subsidized housing and free health care and so on. And so that's sort of tempting. Uh, and but the the sort of of course the danger is that um, being lured into that socialism uh, makes the first problem, uh, which is the unprecedented level of debt, uh, significantly worse. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I wrote the book. And to sort of underscore how much of a, a problem we're talking about, the you know, we've been talking about debt and people warn about federal debt for a long time. And nothing uh, happens and people say, hmm, we seem to have avoided some sort of crisis. So maybe it's not really a big deal. 
Rush Limbaugh m- recently said that the debt was always sort of a phony issue and um, on both the right and left um, and certainly with the rise of Donald Trump who has de-emphasized the idea of the importance of doing anything on the debt, um, there's sort of been this disinterest on the, the right and the left in doing anything and questioning about whether it's an issue. But there are a few facts and I think the scariest chart in my book is actually this one which is based on Congressional Budget Office data which goes back to 1790, the George Washington administration. And if you look at the trajectory – Love that administration. Yeah. And if you look at the, the long-term uh, debt throughout American history, the debt that we have now is higher than nearly any point in history, higher than after the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, the Great Depression. The only time when it was briefly higher than it is now was during World War II. Uh, but that was only during a brief period. It was a one-off event. Once we were done fighting, we aggressively paid down the debt. By the time the baby boomers were entering the working world in the 1960s, uh, the the debt had retreated to very low levels. Um, but now, in the coming decades, we're going to exceed that World War II uh, record. And then keep going and going and going. Um, until, it's going to be an ongoing entitlement or liability thing rather than a one-off pay-for-award to defeat Nazis, which is kind of a worthwhile investment. Yes. And the, the scary thing particularly is if you look at some of the moments I mentioned in history where we've had elevated de- debt levels, what they have in common is wars and significant economic uh, catastrophes. Right now – we have relative peace and unemployment is at 3.5%. Debt and deficits should be shrinking. Instead, we we just had a nearly trillion dollar deficit. And for as far as the eye can see or the CBO can estimate, um, we're going to have trillion dollar deficits going forward. So for the people that sort of say, well, it, it hasn't been a problem up to this point, um, they neglect the fact that we were really entering a period that we've never experienced before, both in terms of the level of debt and um, the fact that it's not tied to any sort of short-term event. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens when inevitably there's some sort of conflict or there's some sort of economic downturn? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the um, the old jokes about the guy – who jumps off the 12th floor of a building, off the roof of a building, and halfway down, he says, so far, so good, right? I mean, it doesn't, just because it hasn't gone bad yet, I mean, was Paul Ryan used to say this is the most predictable crisis in American history or something mm-hmm. like that? Mitch Daniels. Was it Mitch Daniels? And Ryan used to say. Um, uh, I've heard Paul Ryan say it, but maybe he quoted Mitch Daniels the first 500 times and then <laughs> uh, started doing it himself. But, um, um, so I don't, I think this may be a first on this podcast, um, and if I spontaneously combust, you'll see why. Um, what do you make of – what is your response to like the Paul Krugman argument <laughs> that says since we're borrowing this from ourselves, it's not really debt. It's not really a problem. You can just You can just keep doing it for as long as you like. Well, the interesting thing is that Paul Krugman traditionally has been very – 
skeptical of and sort of critical of people who care about the you know right. deficits. But interestingly, he the new movement of leftists are actually too extreme for Paul Krugman even. That's the modern monetary theory yes. people. Yes, and modern monetary theory, which is sort of a complicated um, set of beliefs, the, the, essentially the easiest way to think about it is they argue that if a country is printing their own currency they, and issuing debt in their own currency, that they can't actually – debt isn't really an issue because mm. they could always print more money to pay off the, the debt and you know, figure out a different – various ways to control inflation through increasing taxes and so forth. Um, and they sort of – and that's something that – Is this is, – I keep meaning to look into this. Is the monetary, modern modern – MMT, I'll just yes. say it because it's less of a tongue twister. Is it demonstrably different than, than mint the $2 trillion coin thing or is it the same thing? It's similar. It's okay. similar. It's basically saying that the debt isn't an issue and that America is the, you know, the, the world's default currency – People aren't going to start stop buying our debt suddenly. We could just always we could just issue uh, you know, if if there's if there are goods that can be purchased with dollars, then we can't really have a debt problem. But the interesting thing is that Paul Krugman actually has been deeply critical of MMT, and he's called it Calvin Ball. Mm-hmm. Because basically one of the frustrating things about economists that have tried to run into it is that it's sort of this fringe movement of of uh, economists that have often grown out of blogs and so forth. And so it's there's an ad hoc quality to it. So oftentimes if you criticize it, somebody will write a post saying, oh, you don't understand MMT. It's right. something totally different, Right. And so that's sort of the frustration. But I think the reason why MMT is gaining some traction, and you saw, for instance, AOC call it out explicitly, and I think that you see it implicitly called out um, in some of the efforts from Democratic candidates to obfuscate what the actual costs of, of – or how they're going to pay for proposals. Um, the clear appeal is that – Democrats have this very ambitious agenda. They wanted to, the far left wants to accomplish, you know, spend tens of trillions of dollars, and if you actually try to pay for it, it gets into all of these trade-offs that you saw the problems that Elizabeth Warren ran into in her campaign when she tried to outline some sort of pay-fors. Right. Um, and so the sums are so enormous. I mean, when you add in the Green New Deal and job guarantees, tens of trillions of dollars, uh, that would necessitate massive middle-class tax increases. And so as a result of that, it's sort of tempting to have this sort of theory that sounds erudite that just says, oh, well, you don't have to worry about it. Only these silly people worry about it. And it has kind of this appeal that I think that, you know, it's like the Matrix or, you know, Noam Chomsky, where it's yeah. this idea that, like, all these other suckers are living in this different world because they haven't, you know, taken the pill and yeah. recognized the, the real truth, which is that 
uh, all this debt paranoia is just is just craziness, and it's just a way. It's just a trick that's used to try to prevent us from talking about all the great things that could be done through yeah. I mean, it, government spending. Obviously, it bears very little resemblance to Marxist theory, but as a sociological phenomenon, it really is reminiscent of the old school Marxists who, anytime you pointed out any contradiction, they would say, well, that's because you don't really understand Marxist theory and that all of these contradictions and tensions will be resolved through the rising of class consciousness. And it's like... There was no criticism you could offer that just simply through the manipulation of words, they would try to say, you just, we are the people of science, we understand this, and even if you can't understand it, that's your problem, you know, which I think is a tendency probably goes back to the Gnostics, you know, that this, yeah. like, uh, any disagreement has to do with the, any any unwillingness to join in my cause and my agenda is because you lack the properly ordered soul or the cognition re- required to, to see the, the permanent truth here, you know? And it, you, But you would just think for grown-ups, any theory that tells you you can have your cake and eat it too, you should worry. Like, yeah. you should feel like maybe there's going to be cider in your ear or something, you know, about it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the Freudian trick Freudians are another example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like if you disagree with something the Freudians say, then it's just your conscious self denying the the truths that, right. you know, you're, uh, the unconscious truths and so forth. Speaking of unconscious truths. Today's episode is brought to you by the National Association of Scholars. Free speech at our college and university campuses is a topic of increasing concern to many of us, and with good reason. Political correctness dominates the landscape that students face on campus today. Colleges work hard to persuade alumni that all is well, but your values are often not reflected in classrooms or on the quad. Worse still, students and professors can be censured or punished for supporting ideas that were once common sense, such as socialism as a dangerous ideology or personal character matters. Fortunately, there's an organization standing against this tide. The National Association of Scholars is a national nonprofit community of scholars and citizens working to defend a classical vision of higher education. NAS promotes intellectual freedom and the value of civic education and is committed to upholding the values of a liberal arts education in the Western tradition. If you care about higher education and about the direction of our nation's future, consider joining the National Association of Scholars. Membership is open to all who believe that universities should seek truth rather than promote political ideologies. NAS stands up for those courageous enough to provide a voice for them on campus. You can support their work today by joining as a member. As a member, you will receive a subscription to NAS's quarterly journal, Academic Questions, as well as exclusive invitations to events around the country with speakers such as Heather McDonald, Wilfred McClay, and Mark Bowerline. To join, just go to nas.org slash dingo to sign up today. That's nas.org slash dingo. We thank the National Association of Scholars for supporting the remnant. Um, okay, so back to the the, the thesis. I am... Uh, what was the name? This guy from Wall Street Journal we had on who wrote a. Um, Joe something. Yeah, I'll, we'll skip. We'll cut that part out. I'm 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 sympathetic to the, 
the thesis that millennials are being treated somewhat unfairly, particularly older millennials. Um, but uh, um, uh, but just so I understand and listeners understand, there's a distinction here, right? The um, your argument about public debt, while an objective criticism about public policy and a point in the column for the case for millennials to be pissed off um, is a good one. Is there much evidence that millennials are actually pissed off about public debt? I mean, that's not what drives their anger. They want more public debt, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you look more broadly on the um, you know, some of the polling I looked at in my, in, in my book, there is this... Um, uh, general fear and feeling like they that things are going to be worse going forward, mm -hmm. and that's even when you account for the fact that younger generations are often pessimistic about the future and often feel like things were better before they got there. Even accounting for that, there's still a large number of concern about the future and a, a sense that the so-called American dream is slipping away. Um, but that's fear and, about their personal future, their personal debt, or yeah, climate change, or something. Yes, it's not about yeah. we don't have a reserve army of budget hawks yeah. waiting for us among no, millennials, do no, we? No, no, and that's part of the reason that I wrote the book is that um, I think that for reasons I mentioned um, that millennials are lured towards socialism because. The problems they're facing, and I could go into that, which a lot of conservatives kind of – I kind of feel like I had two skeptical audiences I was addressing with this book. One was the people that are skeptical of the fact that the debt is really something to be concerned about. And the other is conservatives who are skeptical that millennials really have it mm -hmm. worse off because they think, well, you know, it's, it's a world of wonders. People have – iPhones that you know, they carry around their pockets that mm -hmm. have more computing power than NASA did in the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. And they could order Ubers and they could go to, you know, get groceries deliveries and get anything they want delivered to their doorstep in a day or two and so forth. And so there are certainly many advantages to modern life. But on the other hand, we have the sort of crushing um, – college costs, mm -hmm. which are real and hurtful for two reasons. One is that there are fewer jobs, and I know Lyman Stone has done some mm -hmm. work on this for AEI about how their sort of licensing and degree requirements are much more extensive today than they were in prior eras. Right. So simultaneously, it's harder for millennials to get decent paying a decent paying job without a college degree, and then if you get a college degree, you have to go tremendously in debt because um, I have the statistics in my book, but it's basically the cost of college has adjusted for inflation has gone up several hundred percent in the past you know several decades, and student loans are have expanded to about a trillion and a half dollars. And to, to put that in perspective, that's higher than any form of consumer loan other than 
uh, mortgages. Mm -hmm. So the difference is that if you look at auto loans and uh, credit card loans, which are around a trillion dollars, that's spread among the whole population. Mm -hmm. But these student loans are highly concentrated among people in their 20s or 30s. So just as there's reason to fear that retirement programs weren't there for them, um, they're having very difficult time sort of saving for retirement, um, starting families, purchasing houses. Home prices have gone up. Again, that's something else that has gone up much faster than incomes. Mm -hmm. And the you know, one counterargument is saying that, um, well, the houses are larger now. So actually on a square footage basis, they haven't really gone up. But if you're a young couple that wants to buy a house and start a family, it doesn't do much good for you if you can't afford the six-bedroom house, even mm -hmm. if it's on a per square footage basis, you know, less, you know, the same price. You want a small, sort of a small starter home, and it's harder to find. Um, healthcare costs have gone up tremendously adjusted for inflation, about 10 times in the last 50 years. And that's something that Obamacare made a lot worse because basically the short version of it is that to be able to make insurance more affordable for people who are older and sicker, it forced younger and healthier people to pay a lot more money to purchase much more comprehensive insurance than right. they really need. Um, so you have all these factors and it shows up in the fact that millennials are slower to build wealth, slower to save for retirement uh, than previous generations. And so I think to get back to your question, if you look at the experience of millennials and how that it changed from prior generations – from um, um, the young, oldest millennials were born in 1981. Um, and so that means they're about eight years when the Berlin Wall collapses. They don't really have the experience of living during the Cold War and living through all of the, the ideological debates over capitalism versus socialism, seeing the collapse of failed socialist experiments. Um, but what they do have is they have an experience of many of them were graduating college or earlier in their careers when the Great Recession hits, um, and they attribute that to the failures of capitalism, even though we could do a whole segment about sort of government policies that contributed to that. Um, and then they're facing all of these cost concerns. Right. And so then a Bernie or, or Warren comes along and says, well, I can take away all of these daily costs, that they're not necessarily thinking about debt problems that are 10 or 20, 30 years away because people are, tend to be short-term thinking and you know, trying to save for a house or pay off student debts every month are an immediate concern, whereas the debt seems like it's sort of a far away and distant. No, it's an abstraction. I get yeah. that. Yeah. So, so that's why one of the reasons I wrote the book is to try to, you know, basically convince uh, millennials and say, like, I'm sympathetic to, to, to what your complaints are, but, so you know, just embracing socialism in the long run is going to make things better off without solving your, the underlying problems. And it's certainly a challenge. And I, the, the, one of the reasons I make it, make this argument and wrote the book is that I feel like, Conservatives and Republicans are typically 
too reactive um, and they try to deny things or problems that people think are problems rather than saying, okay, we're going to think of alternate solutions. Mm -hmm. And one big example is healthcare policy, which I've written a lot about, where for years, Democrats talked about they wanted, you know, wanted to expand in, uh, coverage. They wanted to expand the government's role, and Republicans either sort of dismissed, you know, basically would focus on saying Democrats are exaggerating the crisis, um, or just simply waiting for Democrats to propose something to say that's a crazy idea, mm -hmm. instead of using the time when they were in power to actually affirmatively pass free market reforms sure. to the healthcare system. And that's kind of what I worry about um, with the way Republicans and conservatives are now. They're sort of laughing off a lot of these concerns about student loans, college costs, um, what you know, um, uh, housing costs with a lot of sort of stop whining, pull yourself up, up yeah. by your bootstraps talk. And I, I feel like you know, can alienate a generation that is going to be in the coming years replacing baby boomers as the largest voting age population. Yeah. So, I mean, this touches on a bunch of different things. I mean, your point about conservatives, it kind of drives me crazy as a bipartisan phenomenon that both conservatives and liberals constantly claim that whatever status quo moment, whatever moment that we're in, that this is what free market capitalism looks like, you know? And um, so in, in, with the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, um, you get this sort of, oh, it's, this is what happens when you have unfettered capitalism. Well, that's not what we had in, yeah. you know, in 2007, 2008. Um, and, uh, and the alternative, so, and I think this does show up. Ramesh has made this point a bunch of times that in the polling for millennials or for young people, however you want to call them, um, basically the rise in socialism was almost always um, uh, correlated. Not necessarily. It's basically whenever capitalism is bad odor, that's when socialism goes up. And in the sense that. People tended to even that New York Times big magazine piece about socialism. They sort of admitted it that 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 um, people think what we have now is capitalism, and therefore the alternative to now is socialism. When in reality, we have a very mixed economy. There's corporatism. There's all sorts of things going on, and a lot of the regulated areas of public life are the ones that are the most expensive. I mean, there's the Mark Perry chart, which some people call like the chart of the century, my colleague at AEI, that just shows the prices declining in all sorts of good stuff, except for higher education, healthcare, and um, there's one other, right? I mean, it's like the, the government sector stuff goes up, or the government and rents, right, or housing. And um, so I'm with you on all of that, but just before we get too far afield, I wanted to ask you earlier... Um, what share of student loan debt is actually undergraduate debt versus graduate debt? I don't have that statistic off of the the top of my head. Because it feels I mean the last time I remember looking at this, it was it seemed to me that student loan that that undergraduate debt is actually kind of manageable and one of the problems with the Warren Sanders forgive student loan debt is it really is a massive transfer pay, transfer payment 
not to young people, because most young people don't finish college as it is. Most people don't finish college as it is. It's a transfer payment to people who took out massive student loans, not just for college, but for graduate school. And why the government should be paying that off is a mystery to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that Warren's proposal is slightly less, although highly problematic. It's not quite as crazy as Sanders in so I mean, we're obviously talking in terms of degrees, but... Right. Surface of the sun isn't as quite as hot yes. as the center of the sun. <laughs> but I, basically, Warren kind of beat Sanders to the punch in releasing some sort of plan for student loan forgiveness, but she had certain boundaries in terms of income levels, mm-hmm. like people earning above a certain amount could only get a certain amount of forgived and so forth, and there was some maximum you could potentially get forgiven and so forth, whereas Sanders came along and said, okay, we're just going to eliminate all student loan debt. And some people who with student loan debt might be um, lawyers who are earning six-figure salaries right. who have a few hundred grand in debt because they went to law school. That's and clear. doctors yeah. and, you know, all sorts yeah, of Yeah, doctors and so forth. So that... Is And I think Peter Suderman wrote uh, about how one of the aspects of student loan forgiveness is that it's a giant wealth transfer to – it's a giant transfer to people who are more elite and more well-connected. Right. Um, And so I agree that trying to have the government eliminate it is ridiculous, but I also think that the – you can't not acknowledge the effect that having massive student loans is going to, you know, if somebody has to spend hundreds of dollars a month when they're earning an entry level salary yeah. on student loans, that's not money that they're putting into retirement savings when compound interest could really do well for them and where they could invest in more aggressive growth, uh, uh, you know, investments. And so, that's just a reality to sort of acknowledge. And it's a trade-off that prior generations didn't really have to face in the same way. And again, the the sort of graduate school, which I agree is a different situation because I think that a lot of conservatives were like, well, you chose to t- take out the debt. I mean mm-hmm. if you're 18 years old and every adult in your life is saying you have to go to college, right. it's – I'm kind of sympathetic to somebody that said, wow, I didn't realize like I'd be 50 grand in debt. Um, And certainly someone who's older, who's in their 20s and decides to go to graduate school, it is in a different category. Particularly if they go to graduate school for, you know, uh, poetry. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, like you're you're choosing a lifestyle that you're going to make debt difficult to pay off. Right. Yeah. Which is – I didn't get into it as much um, in the book, but I mean that's why I wonder if there might be ways to change the student loans in such a way that they resemble more of a free market because right now you pay the same interest rate if you're taking out student – you know, subsidized mm-hmm. federal student loans no matter what, whereas there might be pe- – whereas – a person, you know, in the free market, people that have a higher risk of default have to pay a higher interest rate. Right. If you were sort of getting a graduate degree in whatever 
art history or something like that, your long-term earnings potential is less than somebody who's getting a mechanical engineering degree right. from MIT. So is there room for the the free market to work and adjust interest rates in such a way that it might make make people steer toward something more rational? Yeah. Um, and I would hope that over time that there is some breaking point where people realize that for a lot of careers it it's not it's not necessary to to get uh it might not be the best move to get an undergraduate degree like it might be better to to learn some sort of specific skill sure and start working earlier and there's no shame in that um Brian Kaplan made a very strong case for that on this podcast a while back um, his book was a little overly broad in its title, it was The Case Against Education, Yeah, which yeah. <laughs> I think is kind of wrong. But um, but his argument about higher education I think is a really, really good one that yeah. the, the credentialing function is what you're paying for more yeah. than the education. And yeah. there's a lot of data that says a lot of the education that you get in college doesn't stick. It's more a way for elites to um, filter – you know, the meritocracy in a certain yeah. way. And I, I'm sympathetic. But so I want to get back to um, – so I, I'm totally with you on the public debt stuff. I'm mostly with you on the raw um, – uh, the unfairness of some of the critiques of millennials. I mean, we're not talking about their culture, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of their cultural yeah. choices. Um, I, I like Baby Yoda. Yeah. But um, – um, it seems to me, though, and I, I've been making this argument for a while, that, um, and I'll, I'll leave aside my oft-expressed view that the greatest generation also has a lot of blame because the government bent the, the the rules were all broken for the for that generation, and then the boomers just ran with, you know, the 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 broken principle. But um, um, it seems to me that the drive towards socialism or the fondness towards socialism from young people really is is for the most part I shouldn't say for the most part is often uh untethered from the economic arguments that you're making it is a um I'm very much in the Tim Carney civil society civic institutions are breaking down and socialism sounds like the kind of thing where we're all in it together right and um and so the of course, there's a you get a permission structure. Whenever somebody tells you, "I'm going to forgive all your debt," your motivated reasoning and a permission structure to say yes to that is already there. But part of it, I think, is also just this desire for community that that socialism comes with. And the very few of the people who are like all in for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders and all of that are doing it as a green eye shade cost benefit analysis and more about the sort of romanticism of it. Do you disagree with that or? Um, well, I mean, I guess it's more that just in general, I'm not big on sort of that there's one explanation. Sure. No, that's fair. I am too. I agree with yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that it's totally fair um, to say that there is some sort of um, uh, you know, cultural element to it that's that the, sort of this communal desire that's that's you know, goes beyond. I mean, I'm sure that that's, I think it's fair to say that's an element of it. But I'd also argue that also economic experiences could um, could create that sort of desire. Like mm. a lot of the things that 
Tim Carney talks about uh, my colleague at the Washington Examiner. Um, and my colleague at the American he, Enterprise Institute. <laughs> um, who you know, he talks about in his book, Alienated America, he talks about the all of the how basically there is this um, the social isolation that exists and how that helped help Trump mm -hmm. in terms of in areas with more intact communities, people were less likely to buy into Trump's argument that the American dream is dead and in other areas where there had been more social isolation, closing of churches and little leagues and so forth, that you'd have more of an appeal for Trump when he says the American dream is dead and so forth. Uh, I think that you could make an uh, a similar argument that if you're in a you know, in an economy where it's sort of the gig economy and mm -hmm. you're feeling like you're on your own and you're struggling to pay student loans and you it's difficult to start a family because you can't have a you know house because it's too expensive, you can't afford childcare, that if you're facing those conditions, I could see how that is also an element of this isolation that might make you say, hmm, maybe if we could all sort of pull these things together, um, then um, – it, it'll it'll help that mm -hmm. maybe um, somebody who's going through that life would seek in politics a politics that makes it feel like we're all part of this community. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess one way to explain what I'm coming from on this is that there's an asymmetry between our concept of socialism and our concept of nationalism in the sense that um, in part because of the kind of brilliant marketing campaign of Marxism, which claimed that this was a science, right, and that this was grounded in the science of history and um, and that they took economics seriously as a science, that we tend to invest in socialism both more moral grandeur, right? We make it sound like, you know, if you're a socialist, you just care about poor people and equality and all of these things, and a, a more intellectual rigor. With nationalism, and I'm a critic of both. I'm pretty well established on this. With nationalism, um, there is now this effort, um, including by some friends of ours or you know whatever, to craft a public policy program that is very serious and rigorous to go with nationalism. And my point is, is that with with socialism, the presumption that there's a lot of rigor and ser moral and intellectual seriousness to it is built in. Um, and with nationalism, when people try to construct a sort of nationalist economic program, they're like, well, what is, you know, what is that? You know, what are you talking about? And it's just sort of assumed that the, the driving engine of what nationalism is all about community or patriotism or nativism, you know, whether, depends on whether you think nationalism is a good or a bad thing. But it's usually an argument about emotional commitments first and public policy second. And with socialism, people tend to assume that it's about public policy commitments first, and then only under rigorous interrogation will they admit that part of it is actually just as emotionally driven as what nationalism is. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that some, I mean, part of, I mean, I didn't develop this idea very much um, beyond, at one point I sort of mentioned this on, on Twitter, but I wouldn't be totally shocked, and I wouldn't have said this um, 10 years ago, say, if you had some sort of actual fusionism between the sort of 
Warren-style populism and a sort of nationalism and cultural conservatism type thing. We're getting that with Tucker Carlson now. I mean, Tucker says I don't – he loves – he likes Warren's economic program and he says I don't understand why you can't have economic nationalism with cultural conservatism, you know. And we're seeing – and I thought back to the uh, 2012 Republican primary and there was that point where um, Gingrich was nowhere and then he started attacking Romney on Bain Capital and – all of the sort of think tank and sort of professional conservatives were attacking Gingrich and making sort of all the arguments about capitalism and creative destruction and, and so forth. Um, but then Gingrich sort of surged in the polls. Yeah. And I feel like looking back on that, that was sort of an early sign yeah. that what w- the arguments that we make in the free market arguments, whether it's trade or immigration or the sort of behavior of capitalists and businesses is different than necessarily what every Republican thinks. Now, if you look at Trump, it just so happens that Trump, for all of his bombast, more or less outsourced a lot of the economic policies to, other than trade and immigration, really, uh, if you look at taxes and regulatory policy, it's basically the type of policy that you'd expect if Romney were president or Jeb Bush were president. It's, It's... it's sort of pretty standard Washington conservative think tank uh, policies. And but you could see sort of, you know, the Republican Party could evolve in many different ways. And it seems that judging by what Tucker Carlson's doing and sort of the reaction to that, that there might be some sort of, uh, you know, there might be some candidate who could sort of fuse Warren style critiques of capitalism um, maybe the idea of we're going to use government policy to put America first and mm-hmm. we're going to, in a punitive way, target companies that are trying to ship jobs overseas or that are you – know, you see this sort of with Josh Hawley going after Facebook and stuff. So I think that a lot of the ideas that we've, you know, we feel and we've written about a long time about free market capitalism that, you know, that they've sort of – they – it, it's not clear cut that there's actually a consensus on that at, at, at all on the Republican Party. So maybe you don't see sort of a Republican candidate saying going all in on Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. But maybe you see elements of sort of Warren's anti-Wall Street agenda merged with a kind of attacks on, you know, uh, um Story hours by sure. transgender. Story yeah, no, hours. there's nothing logically inconsistent. Yeah, with the. I mean, uh, it's a very Hayekian point: is that there are planners in all parties and coalitions, and the planners right now um, are ascendant, and the people who are against planning from the right or from the left um, host podcasts called the Remnant for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so. What do you do about it, right? I mean, that's that's the question you're going to get the most from audiences is, because most audiences that you're going to talk to for this book are going to be fairly sympathetic because you wouldn't be invited if they mm-hmm. weren't fairly sympathetic. Either that or you're going to be, you know, the Washington generals mm-hmm. on a panel of modern monetary yeah. theorists. Yeah. And, um, uh, but what is the answer that, you know, uh, so millennials like socialism. They like statism. They like having their problems outsourced to the federal government. 
in the long term, that is bad for everybody. What do you do to stop it? I mean, I think that it's sort of twofold. Is One is sort of you make the case, and as I tried to do in my book, just display the, the actual facts. And I think one element is sort of coming up addressing other – talking about other solutions for these various problems. I think that a market-based healthcare solution actually can have a lot of an appeal to, to millennials. You could have a system that's much taken advantage of how millennials you know, um, you are engaging on their phones. There's you know, you, ways that you could adapt the medical system so that – there's a lot more that's done through apps and through, you know, texting your doctor and so forth. You can have, um, I think that clearly health insurance, um, there should be able to have options that are a lot cheaper that cover millennials in case of sort of catastrophic events, but don't require them to spend hundreds of dollars a month. So there are many arguments on healthcare, on housing. I think that there's some things that even liber- conservatives or libertarianist conservatives and um, liberals could even come to grounds on, such as zoning and the permitting process and how that drives up the cost of affordable housing even before you get into trying to subsidize it. You mm. could you could build more affordable housing if there weren't so many restrictions and zoning restrictions. And so you, I think that you can put together an agenda where you explain that there are a lot of solutions that you could have um, that would be appealing to millennials while also raising more awareness about the long-term debt problem. Now, the actual solving the actual debt problem I didn't go into the solutions in great detail in my book it's in part because I'm writing this in 2019 and not 2011. In 2011, mm-hmm. everyone was talking about there's a debt problem. What are we going to do with it? Now right. I have to sort of go back to the drawing board and reconvince people that there's a problem. But at the end of the day, it's a fairly simple math equation. There's You have to have – Either more revenue or more uh, or lower spending, um, or some combination of both policies, and the debate is to in which direction that you could you know you want to go. And obviously, as a conservative, I think that I'd want the balance to be saying that we want to get spending um, in line with revenues rather than trying to have revenues chase spending. you know ever increasing spending, yeah. but. That's a debate that we can. I mean, the solution. There are plenty of solutions. It's not like, you know, solving the long-term balance of Social Security. It's it's essentially a math equation. Either either you're gonna, in some way, um, increase payroll taxes, or you're gonna reduce benefits, or make wealthier beneficiaries pay more, receive less benefits, or something. Like it's not. In other words, it's not a mystery what you have to do. You just have to have the will to do it and to overcome a lot of the inertia which says that, well, it's easier to just go along. Yeah. So I'm – I agree with you that the, just sort of like that speech that Al Pacino gives in Sense of the Woman where he says, I came to the crossroads in my life and every time I made the wrong decision – 
even though it was clear what it was, it was just too damn hard, right? I mean, there's a sense in which everybody kind of, yeah. every honest, remotely honest person, even if they want to shade about this, they kind of get that this has got to be a problem yeah. and just got to be. And, um, but the impulse to kick the can is is so great. Um, and the ability to, it's like the bleeding over, it's like a category error thing. Those guys were hypocrites when they said they cared about X. So we have a permission structure to not care about X either, even though X is like a real thing, right? Yeah. Um, but like on that point, just out of curiosity, both you and I were pretty into the Tea Party moment and, mm-hmm. and had high hopes. And in your experience, both in retrospect and at the time, you know, how much do you think all of that was truly sincere and how much of it was kind of a stalking horse psycholo- and I don't want to get Freudian here, but you know, but that that it was um, more of a political cudgel, useful political cudgel or Trojan horse against Obama or the left than actual abiding concern about debt and deficits. I mean, clearly in hindsight, it looks it looks bad. More like the yeah <laughs> latter. I mean, I think clearly the promise of the Tea Party at the time was that. Basically, the inertia of Washington is always to just let things grow on autopilot because um, once – no matter what politicians say when they're running for office, when they get here, the path of least resistance has historically always been to just rubber stamp whatever spending um, and nobody – you know. Whatever some people write uh, a, a column criticizing it, but it's not that big of a deal. And the the promise of the Tea Party to me, uh, despite its flaws, was always that for the first time you had a mass movement that put pressure on politicians, so they were actually more worried that they could lose their jobs if they just went along with the with sure. the, the stream than if they actually tried to fight for, to lower spending. Um, now, over time, that obviously changed, and the party reverted to its normal default position, which is that Republicans tend to only care about the debt where uh when it's um going up know, for the wrong reasons, yes, yeah, or when it's a Democrat in office, yeah, right, right, and so I think clearly there were some people who were concerned at the debt at the time um, and who wrote a, you know who who wrote about it who are still concerned about it uh, but i think that they the people that clearly there was a large element of it's sort of convenient to attack obama against it yeah so i that's certainly uh, disappointing now the other smidgen of credit that I'd give is sort of there is an argument that people could make who are sort of debt skeptics um, who would make the argument that, well, 10 years ago, all these Tea Party types, they came out, they they warned that if we don't do anything about the debt, there's going to be runaway inflation, there's going to be, you know, we're going to turn into Greece and so forth. And we didn't do anything about the debt, and things seem to be around the same. We mm-hmm. still have low interest rates. Inflation hasn't really been a problem, the even though unemployment's low. And so 
I think that some people point to it who might have been open to the argument that debt is a problem 10 years ago are now sort of like, hmm, maybe it's not. Maybe the sort of um, economics was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so – and I, I definitely think that's one challenge I had in writing the book is that there are a lot of elements of traditional macroeconomics that have been challenged by uh, the last decade of economic data. Mm-hmm. And right now we're you – know, te- textbook economics, I learned that you reach a rate of fruitful employment and you're worried about inflation. Well – and you have to start raising rates. Well, now we have unemployment at 3.5% and we have super low in rates and there's no no one's worried about inflation. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, typically you say that if, um, you know, the debt gets downgraded, you'd expect interest rates to soar up. When the, the U.S. debt got downgraded, the interest rates continued to go down. Yeah. So I think that... That is sort of challenging for people that are making conventional economic arguments in a time when a lot of conventional economics is being challenged by real world experience. Um, however, so, trillion dollar coin, here we come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's a good point. I just, it seems to me that, that the, I, I'm, I'm just a, believer in Stein's law, which is that anything that can't go on forever must eventually stop. And the idea that you can just simply keep borrowing trillions upon trillions of dollars, even if due to sort of the soaking up of inflationary pressures by a global market, all of these, I mean, who knows what exactly is going on, but clearly you're right. Something's going on in the data. Um, But it just, it can't be true that given the full scope of history, what happened to countries that went too far into debt, that just constant racking up of debt is not going to have some problem. You know, I don't know what will do it, but if interest rates just go up to their historical norm, I mean, then interest on the service on the debt will be the biggest part of the budget, right? If yeah. it's not already. I mean, yeah. So we that would happen if we just went back to where it was in the 1990s. Um, I don't know if it would necessarily be the biggest, but certainly you'd have a massive increase of huge spike, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I mean, I certainly agree with them. That's basically my view. Generally, is that the the economy could often, or markets can often, behave in ways that seem irrational for a certain period of time, right. but not forever. And you saw this with the housing bubble, right? It For a while, housing prices could go up, but it's not forever. And, and we saw this in the 90s with the dot-com bubble, right? I mean, people... And, uh, uh, whatever, the tulip bulb. Could, yeah. You, know, all yeah. Stuff. you might not have been able to time it if in 1997 you decided, you know, if you had the thesis that dot-coms were overvalued in the late 90s, um, you'd be right in the long run, but if you, you know, sold um, stock short in 1998, 
right. let's say, you would have been dead before the collapse came in 2000. Right. Right. So it, it's sort of – it's difficult. And that's one of the things that economists always say when we talk about a fiscal crisis, which is um, if investors just say we're going to not buy um, – uh, U.S. debt anymore, or we're going to demand drastically higher interest rates, and you have this terrible scenario where you have to choose between sudden, severe spending cuts or massive tax increases. Um, there's no magic formula where you could say once we reach 125 percent of the GDP, that's going to trigger fiscal crisis. We don't know. All we know is that the more it goes up, the more that we're increasing the odds right. that that would happen. Right. And so, it's like the phrase, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Straws don't normally break camel's yeah. back. So the whole yeah. point is, is that you get to a certain point and it makes the odds of a straw breaking a camel's back really, really yeah. high. Yeah. And so if we choose to act now, we'd have the luxury of being able to have the sort of debates I mentioned about – how do we want to solve this? Do we want to raise taxes? Do we want to cut spending? Do we want to go after, you know, um, beneficiaries who are earning more money? Those are debates that we could have and come up with a solution on our own terms. If we wait 20 years and investors say, you know, de you know when debt's 150 percent of GDP or something – and investors want to pull the plug, then we don't have that ability right. to, to sort of ease in changes and actually have a, a normal debate. We're governing in crisis mode. And then it's the Logan's Run solution where we just twirl old people along the <laughs> ceiling of the stadium and blow them up. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Phil Klein, thank you so much for doing this. I know I got to get you out of here. The book is Fear Your Future, How the Deck is Stacked Against Millennials and Why Socialism Would Make It Worse. Thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Um, do you want me to take that again? You seem dismayed. Okay. Gre <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. Oh, sorry. It didn't happen anyway.